Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. Besides this, you know the time. But the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, give us your Holy Spirit, we pray, to illumine this passage from the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome so many centuries ago. Father, would this word be living and active for us here this morning? Would you convict us of sin and convict us of the reality of the crucified and resurrected Savior given for our sins, for our salvation, and for the world? So do a good work in us now. We pray, Jesus, and ask this for the sake of your glorious name. Amen. You may be seated. During rehearsals for music team this morning, it was remarked that, hey, doesn't Lent start with Ash Wednesday? And yes, it starts with that Ash Wednesday, but to fit all of the sermons in, we're starting our Lenten sermon series a tiny bit early, and it's not lost on me as well that a sermon on the first deadly sin this Sunday comes a couple days before Fat Tuesday. So the sequence is going to catch on around the world starting very soon. So Seven Deadly Sins, this is going to be a series in which we seek to get serious about our sin and subduing the self. And Romans chapter 13, our sermon text for this morning, has been used since ancient times to speak specifically of this catalog of sins. We've been in Colossians, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, for large parts of this school year, and we've talked in that sermon series about how Paul's one of his favorite words for living out the Christian faith is walking. And we have that word walk here again at the beginning of verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. And it's kind of like this. Paul understands, and he's articulating here, that Jesus is now crucified and resurrected. Therefore, the light of the sun has dawned on the world. Like Jesus said during his earthly ministry and all the more after his crucifixion and resurrection, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus in his crucifixion and resurrection has inaugurated the kingdom of God, which he will come and consummate when he comes back again at the end of time. The light is here. And Paul says, walk in it. Live like it. The beginning of the text. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. 
For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And then Paul says, if you want to take this part seriously, then you need to fight your own sin. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Bottom line, baseline, next verse. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Don't give your sinful self any oxygen, any space. And this isn't to say here, Paul is not saying here in this passage or other passages, that every desire of the human heart is only sinful all the time? Sure, we have good, there's a creation horizon woven into our desires, for sure, but congenitally, the Bible also says we are bent over and over and over again towards sin. And when our desires bend, Paul says, fight it. Because with that sinful nature, what Paul sometimes calls the flesh, give the flesh an inch and it will take a mile. What better season than Lent, which traditionally has been used in the church around the world and throughout the ages, to think seriously about getting serious about Jesus and walking with him, eliminating behaviors that should not be in our life, that we could focus on being a follower of Jesus. Here we go. Seven deadly sins. Three short parts from here. I want to give a little bit of a series overview. Then I would like to offer you a slice of gluttony. And then I want to give you a personal story. So a series overview. This idea of a very specific set of sins comes to us from way ancient times. The monastics and the very, very ancient church were the ones that began to think in these terms. And Josh Postlewaite, our pastoral resident here, has done research for the people that are going to be preaching in this series about the seven deadly sins. He sent a lot of good stuff my way. Here's the list of sins themselves. Gluttony. Greed. Anger, listlessness or dejection, lust, envy, pride. We're going to hit all of those different things. And a tiny bit of church history here. It started with the monk in the Eastern Church. This is 4th and 5th century of Vargius. But then came through and to the West by another monastic, John Cassian, who was a little bit of a bridge figure between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. One of the Western popes, Gregory the Great, liked it shortly after that. And then the great medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s talked more and more and more about these specific sins. Now, over the past few weeks when, we, when we've been saying, hey, we're going to be talking about this sermon series, I fielded a lot of good questions saying, tell me a little bit more about why we're talking about these things and how. And good questions, but a couple of you asked, I, is this weird? Is this going to get a, a little weird? Well, with, with this guy, you never know. But, hey, we're a Protestant church. I've heard a lot more about seven deadly sins and Roman Catholic churches. Tell me a little bit more about where this is going. So, so yes, this is used more, this catalog, in Roman Catholic churches than Protestant churches. And however it's used in Catholicism, I want to be clear that there's nothing magical or exhaustive about these particular seven things and... Yes, it's the title of the sermon series, and it's a very catchy phrase, the seven deadly sins. It gets your attention, doesn't it? But also, to be clear, we sing here on Sunday mornings, Jesus paid it all, not Jesus paid it 
some, okay? So deadly in the form of serious, yes, these are very serious sins that we should take very seriously, but if you believe in Jesus, know that you're completely forgiven. We're going to talk about that every week, including this one. Last thing about Roman Catholicism, there, there is in some Catholic circles a distinction to be made between mortal sins and venial sins. Has anybody ever heard about that, that, that distinction? I, I don't love that distinction as well because the idea there is that venial sins, they're just the little ones. Forget about it. Don't worry about it. But then the mortal sins, forget about it because you're dead. Jesus forgives all your sins, and this is just a simple heuristic tool to talk about things that we should get serious about in our lives. And for that matter, we'll talk about this more in just a minute, I'm not even positive that gluttony in itself is a sin. I don't necessarily think just in itself it necessarily is, but we're going to talk about how gluttony can be a lubricant. And we can go downhill fast in a lot of different directions as we feed our sinful natures. And from a contemporary perspective, secular skeptic, yeah, seven deadly sins, a little bit weird as well. But I would say whether it's the sins in general here or specifically gluttony, there are a lot of contemporary impulses that sort of align with some of what we're trying to get at with this issue of gluttony. In so many different ways, there is this general shared intuition that we consume way too much. Modern iterations, so to speak, on this idea of gluttony. How many of you, after the holidays, did a cleanse? Okay? How many of you have talked about simplifying your life one way or another? I've begun hearing Marie Kondo as a verb. Hey, could you just go ahead and Marie Kondo this room right now, please. It will be much more simplified after that. If people or you or I talk about unplugging or downsizing or right-sizing or reducing your footprint or going on a diet or doing a detox, an intermittent fast, juicing, the fruit kind, not the anabolic steroid kind, off the grid, etc. It gets at that idea and intuition that we take in way too much. But this is where the path divides once again. In the late modern West, yeah, if we talk about unhealthy behaviors, we can have a lot of conversations about that. But then on the other hand, if we call these sins, all of a sudden we're not so sure. Is that a relevant, a good a healthy category for modern people to go in that direction. But I would ask it this way, from the biblical mindset. Think of it like this. When you think about you, is there too much of you or not enough you in you? Is there too much of you or not enough you in you? The bottom line in a lot of ways that the Bible says is there's actually too much you. Now, to nuance that, there is a creation horizon and a fallen horizon that projects towards us from the scriptures. According to the creation horizon, how God has made you and me, we are all fearfully and wonderfully made with deep nobility according to the image of God. 
And especially if you've been in contexts of oppression or injustice or abuse, there should be more you, and that's healthy and good, and God pleasing. But then from the sinful or fallen horizon, and this is the perspective from which Paul is writing here, there's too much of that kind of you in you. And the Bible calls it sin. In the language of the old catechism, it's lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin happens. And I think we tiptoe around it in the late modern West here. We'll try to get close to it. So we'll use language if it's something inside of you. Hey, that's pretty unhealthy. Or if it's between you and another person. Yeah, that's, that, that's offensive. That offended me right here but we want to back away from calling anything wrong. But within the same world cloud, I would put on the other end this whole cancel idea, when, whether from the right or from the left, uh, we'll just cancel each other if we can't take it anymore. I think we're, we're fast to cancel each other because we don't know how to have real conversation and listening dialogue that very often should include things like listening, asking for repentance, naming sin, issuing forgiveness, offering restitution. We have lost all of those skills, including from the biblical world. And so it's like, instead, I don't know how to deal with that. I don't know how to deal with that. I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to deal with that. I can't deal with that. Cancel. The Bible offers a better way forward while naming what's wrong with us, namely sin. And at a practical level, Let's admit it. More of me is not a good idea for me or for you. More of you is not a great idea for you or for me, individually or collectively together as a society. If I think about the secular progressive left, for example, and this is not a brilliant insight from yours truly, this is named by people on the secular progressive left, there's this internal tension where we want to turn up individuality to 11, be you, be you, be you, be you, be you, but at the same time, that creates an inherent pull away from living in community and harmony with other people. So the individual and the collective is always at tension in some of these mindsets. And whether it's on the right or on the left, the more I turn up me, especially in everything out there and in here, it so quickly becomes oppositional towards other people. I'm me, and you need to get more of me too, or you're against me. And naive about the self. Practically one more time. If you're wondering where you are here this morning or online with spiritual realities, is hearing over and over again, you are awesome, you are awesome, you are awesome, you are awesome, really what you need to hear or not. The good news of Jesus, crucified and resurrected, gives us a different and a better way forward of deeper freedom. It understands the human person because God created the human person and says, once you believe in Jesus, you are engaged in a life, and I've used these terms before, it's been a little while, mortification and vivification. You are called by the power and grace of Jesus Christ to fight against the sin in your life. But then also, according to the creation horizon and the renewal, the redemption horizon of Jesus, you are likewise called to vivify, to bring to life all of those wonderful God-given qualities 
and fruit of the Spirit that he has given to you. So turn one down and turn the other up, all under grace. Because already Jesus has paid it all. So we don't have to cringe forward and beat ourselves up and self-defeat all the time if we slip just a little bit. We move forward in grace and mercy, whether you're here as a Christian or a non-Christian. Don't you long for a deeper, better freedom than just a little more or a little less healthy or unhealthy behaviors. Of Argus, one of those ancient monks that thought in this direction, put it like this. Against the monastics, against the monks, the demons, speaking of these sins, engage in naked combat. The sins within you and around you want to mess up the image of God in you. And so we fight back. We don't fight against other people, but we fight within ourselves. We wrestle. We strive. It takes energy and effort. And it struck me as I was doing reading from the ancient church around these seven deadly sins, how often, just like Evargius just said, the sins are used equivalently with the seven demons. Consistent language. And all I want to say about that right here is that to truly fight the flesh and live in the Spirit of God, you really, really, really need the Spirit of God. We're engaged in a supernatural battle when the forces against you really are against you. And that's why we strive for the fruit of the Spirit instead. But the good news of the resurrection of Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit is it's not just you battling you. It's the Spirit of God helping you, in the language that Angel has used recently in his sermons, to become a better you. And Lent is all about putting some things down to fan into flame, good flame, healthy flame, the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Now let's talk more specifically about that slice of gluttony. Now when we think about gluttony, according to this list of catalog of sins, food is primary, that, that's what's considered most directly when we think about gluttony within the seven deadly sins. But broader than that is lots of different kinds of indulgences. And within this catalog of sins, John Cassian, another one of those monks, was careful to say there's an order, there's a progression. Remember how I said earlier that gluttony, just overindulging, 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 is a lubricant that sets you up downhill to sin in multiple ways? Cassian says, yeah, start with this one and then work out. This is a reflection quote in your worship folder. No one whose stomach is full, and you can take that, I think, either literally or metaphorically, no one whose stomach is full can fight mentally against the demon of unchastity, for example. Our initial struggle, therefore, must be to gain control of our stomach and to bring our body into subjection, not only through fasting, but also through vigils, labors, and spiritual, and reading, and through concentrating our heart on fear of hell and on longing for the kingdom of heaven. Food is to be taken in so far as it supports our life, but not to the extent of enslaving us to the impulses of desire. To eat moderately and reasonably is to keep the body in health, not to deprive it of holiness. And so there, there's a dangerous or deceptive component to overindulging. We can say it's just food, or it's just a binge of a substance, or a screen, or a behavior, or anything else. It's just that, when often it's so much more. 
And as I was thinking and praying about my own life and heart, what's the danger and deceptiveness about gluttony? To me, it's these two things. Gluttony dulls and gluttony stirs. Gluttony dulls and gluttony stirs. Gluttony dulls, thinking specifically of food. Have you ever gone overboard at lunch before? Just way too much food. Maybe you have a couple of beers, maybe a lot of fried stuff. Maybe you're just going too hard at the lunch table. How's your afternoon? You see, that's a dulling. You're less productive, and it's not only less productive in terms of getting a couple things done, but I think at a deeper, more holistic level, too, when we overindulge and take in way too much, we're less, biblical word, fruitful, because we're just lazier. We can't get in gear, and we let more things slide. So there's a dulling aspect to it, but then also a stirring, a stirring up aspect. And over-drinking alcohol is famous for this, right? Doesn't take much. Just drink a little bit, and there's anger, and there's lust, and there's pride. Stirring up, stirring up, stirring up. And then to turn the question to you, what are those things where you might be a little gluttonous or maybe a little bit more? What are those things that are dulling and or stirring to you? What might they be? It might be food. It might be alcohol. It might be an addictive substance. It might be an addictive pattern. It might be shopping, right? It might be social media. It might be binging screens one way or another. And how you can tell that there may be some dulling or stirring going on what are your rabbit holes? What are those things that you do where it just seems like you go dark for a little while? Where when you come up for air again, you think, I've lost so much time just now. It's like there wasn't even need for that. That's gluttony at work to dull and to stir. And as we think about Lent, it's a great time. We take up Jesus, but then also we put down some of these other patterns. And the way I'm thinking about Lent for this year, sometimes I wonder if, if Lent, and I'm not saying that it's anybody's fault, but it just kind of drifts in this direction, has been co-opted within a larger Western mindset of just wellness culture in, in, in different ways, which is not the worst thing in the world. But Christian, you are not called to put things down for Jesus just so you can up your wellness quotient a little bit. Instead, you are called to put down things that lead to sin so that you can mortify the flesh and vivify the work of Jesus Christ in your life. There's some overlap there, but they are not the same things. And maybe use Lent as a practice session for things that maybe you should do longer term. So if the whole idea for you in Lent is I'm just going to white knuckle a little bit, and then if I was doing something at 8, that, yeah, I should probably keep it more in the three to four range. I'm going to turn it to zero, but then starting on Easter, I turn it back up to 11. That's not Lent working. That's Lent not working. What it prescribed. 
And I'll say these three things. When you're seeking to mortify the flesh and to reduce gluttony in your life, curb, crucify, and cultivate. Curb. Cut off the oxygen supply. Turn it way down. Be clear in your own mind and heart and life saying, hey, when I'm here, way too often I get here. Instead of trying to avoid being here, you need to try to avoid being there. Don't let the domino rally go to its entire conclusion. Stop it at the beginning. Curb it. Fasting has been used in so many different ways for great fruitfulness in the Church of Jesus Christ from monastic times, which may have been the whole point, you could say, of the monastic orders. We're, we're reducing so that we can focus. So there's a curbing aspect, then also a crucify aspect. Just kill it. Just uproot it. Take it out. Don't abide with it any longer. Just say, I'm done. And remember what we were talking about a few weeks ago from Paul's letter to the Colossian church? I'm not going to explain the concept. You can go back and listen to the sermon. Definitive sanctification, where if you believe in Jesus, and this is one of the main reasons why you must believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is inside of you, and you are a new and different person. It's not just the sinful nature in you anymore. It is a power and indestructible life of the Holy Spirit as you've already been redeemed. And so when you're trying to fight sin in your life, there is a new you inside of you that gives you access to new power and life and forgiveness that you could not access before. When I started following Jesus in college, one of the first verses I ever memorized was from the book of Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. And the life I live in the body, I live now. It's Christ that lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God that died for me, that gave himself for me. You have been crucified with Christ. It is Jesus that lives in you. It's not your life only anymore. So you can fight it. Crucify it. Paul talks in this passage about putting on the armor of light. Use that armor. Engage in that battle. And then also cultivate. Don't just pull out all of the weeds without planting some better stuff. Instead. And I love the organic plant metaphor, if you think about it, fruit of the spirit. That's something to cultivate, to grow, to tend over time. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all the rest. Tend to those by the Spirit of God inside of you as you wrestle all under the victory of Jesus Christ already crucified and resurrected. Last part, personal story. I want to talk a little bit about my journey with alcohol over the years. I stopped drinking this past June, so it's been, it's been a while now. And I'm not saying that to get a pat on the back or gold star. It's kind of like this. A, a few years ago, after a holiday, I was doing just a dry January, and Emily and I, right after the holiday, went out to a nice restaurant in Philly. The server said, sir, would you like a cocktail? And I said, no, thank you. I'm doing a dry January. And he said, congratulations. Good for you, sir. And I said, it's January 3rd. <laughs> you know, Chandler was my favorite friend, right? So don't, 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 don't just give me gold stars all the way on, on, on January 3rd. So, so in that same vein, as I was thinking about gluttony, I thought, hey, this, this pattern with me can actually fit here. So I hope it's helpful to talk about just a little bit. Talking less about drunkenness here. Although, when I've gone too far and become drunk, that is a sin, and I need to repent of it. 
It's more just, in this case, the gluttonous repetitive pattern for me. So for a while, alcohol has been a thing. First, by way of photo negative, I didn't drink at all. And for, for some of you, it, you might be like, why would you even say that? I didn't drink at all in middle school. <laughs> I grew up in New Orleans, and everybody around me drank, drank in middle school. So I didn't drink in middle school. Didn't even drink in high school. Can, can, can you believe that? I was the only guy in my graduating class that ingested no alcohol throughout all middle school and high school. And a lot of it was pride, where, hey, you know what? I'm the one guy who, at the end of the party, is not an idiot. That's actually pretty awesome. Chicks really dug it. Do you know why? Because I was the one guy who, at the end of the party, was not an idiot. This was a pride thing, not in a holier-than-thou and not a super healthy way. But then began drinking in college, and then just over time, there was this creep and creep and creep and creep. And as I've come into my mid-40s, thinking more, I can see the dulling and the stirring at work. Dulling. Part of this is physiological, just as a function of aging, but not only. Hey, when I exercise a day after drinking, I can't do my four-minute miles anymore. I'm starting to feel it just a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And I'm more sluggish, I'm less sharp, and I'm less present. And then also I'm feeling too spiritually when for a period of time when alcohol consumption has been increased a little bit or maybe more than a little bit or over a longer period of time, when I pray and read my Bible in the morning. I feel a little bit less of the presence of Jesus now. Is there something, is there a connection there? And apart from the mornings, as I go through my days, am I missing out on a little bit of the awareness of the Spirit of God at work in my life, in my heart, and in the world? So it simply got to the point for me where, and this is a question that we should ask ourselves with whatever gluttony dangers we're in, Am I sure that I would not be a better follower of Jesus, a better, pa well, in my case, better pastor, all in my case, but you can translate, better husband, better father, better friend, if I just cut this out? And over time, I realized I can't say that I'm sure that there's no connection there, negatively speaking. So I think I just need to get rid of it. And then the stirring aspect, too. If that's dulling, the stirring part, for me, mind and tongue. It doesn't take much alcohol inside of me to warp my thinking into understanding more and more that I am the martyred hero of my own story, where charitable judgments of those around me fall by the wayside, the tongue gets so much sharper, especially to those that are closest to me and that I love the most. Again, am I sure that there is no connection here? I'm not. So I need to cut it out. So eventually, the crossroads for me were like two doors, where through door number one, continuing to drink, was this ever-growing, giant Rube Goldberg machine apparatus of limits, 
and checks and balances and accountability structures and patterns and this many a week, this many a month, this many a year, tracking, checking, so that this would stay in check. And I just got to the point where that giant machine was exhausting to me. But if I'd simply stopped, door number two, do you know what's behind that door? It's Jesus going, I said, that's the door that I need. I want to be there. And what I lose is less of me, but what I gain is more of Jesus. And for whatever your gluttonous patterns that you think you should cut out might be, there is a crucifixion there. So there's a little bit of my understanding, hey, I'm not that same guy anymore, that awesome guy in high school who is better than everybody else. And then also now, even moving to Collingswood and planning Liberty Collingswood, it was helpful for me to be at a guy at a party with a lot of Collingswood folks because when, past, when people hear pastor, they think dork. It's 100% it's natural. I, and it's not, it's not an unfair stereotype a lot of the time. But for me to say, hey, I'm a pastor, I'm starting a church, but I'm also able to knock back a couple of drinks and have a good time, they're like, oh, okay, I'm at ease. But all of a sudden, I'm not that guy anymore. But there's more Jesus. From the perspective of the scriptures, including a passage like this, I got to the point where I could not read Romans 13, 11 to 14 without my conscience barking and saying, but what about the drinking question? Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, quarreling, jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The conscience was barking, and this is where we'll close. If you let the Holy Spirit do a radar sweep in your own life of things that you're doing, substances, behaviors, patterns, that you're repeating way too much, is there something that's going beep, 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 beep? Center in on what that beep or what those beeps are, and there you might have what you must put down middle of the passage, Paul talks about put on the armor of light, but I love how he uses that same command but changes it in the last verse. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on Christ. Live out of your Jesus self. Don't give any quarter to the sinful desires that are just going to knock you off of the Jesus path and meet and find Jesus on the way. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, 
and serve at you later.